The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Chronic Kidney Disease in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes. The Impetus for Early Recognition and Strategies for Coordinating Optimal Patient-Centered Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ZSZ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. So, hello and welcome to this educational session organized by the Peer View Institute. My name is Christoph Wanner and I'm co-chairing this meeting with Professor Hido Hersping from Groningen University. We have this meeting on CKD, chronic kidney disease in patients with type 2 diabetes. And we have the impetus today to recognize early and develop strategies for coordinating optimal patient-centered care. Then I have four slides, science now, before I hand over to Professor Hairspink. And actually, I, Hedo, you proposed this headline. If you don't seek, you won't find. Anyway, the first slide is the incidence of type 2 diabetes related CKD is increasing globally. What you see here is the first block Europe in the Middle Asia and America. It's over time from 1990 to 2017, the data, and it's increasing in age categories, which you see decades of age. And in the middle block is interesting because if you focus on the y-axis, you see that the incidence cases, they are much higher, go up to 120 per 10,000 people which is only about 40 to 50 in the Americas and Europe. So globally, type 2 diabetes is the second leading cause of CKD, and Asia is uh, the front runner. Quite nice data published in 2021. And then a slide, what we clinicians now have a grip on. So what you see is on the left-hand side, the EGFR ML per minute, and the patient is coming to you at the age of 70 with quite well-preserved kidney function of 70 ml. But he can come to you at an EGFR of 30 because it's a silent disease at the age of 70. And then you have a disease, kidney disease, and he's progressing. And you see the dotted line where he's progressing towards kidney failure or end-stage kidney disease. And if you give him an intervention, an SJT2 inhibitor, then you can move this curve up. If he is coming late, and this model tells you, has been calculated, that you can give him three years away from dialysis. If you have the chance to intervene early and the patient is accepting the treatment, then you can give him many, many more years, and maybe with 92 years, he has a different problem. So this is the current value of the treatment, and we nephrologists are always seeking to push up the curve to prevent progression of diabetic kidney disease and chronic kidney disease. So here are societies, International Society Nephrology, 
and also guideline bodies, KDGO, kidney disease improving global outcome, then Wonka, the family practitioners, and PCDE, they recommend currently all the same thing. Early identification and diagnosis of CKD. Step one is you need to make a diagnosis before you treat. And then the main clinical risk factors for CKD identified, evaluate the kidney function, do EGFR and UACR, evaluate kidney damage by UACR if the UACR is elevated or the EGFR is down below 60 ml per minute, then you retest, don't lose time, and then you give him the treatment. So this is the concept currently. So both EGFR and UACR are needed to stage CKD, and UACR is often overlooked. A final slide is on the pyramid KDGO has developed the bottom is lifestyle and self-management. This is what we always do. Then we give first-line drug therapy, a statin for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease to everybody with CKD, RAS blockade for hypertension, progression of kidney disease, SJT2 inhibitor, nearly for everything, CKD, heart failure, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, and more metformin, Plus an SJT2 inhibitor is recommended at first-line therapy for patients with type 2 diabetes because we want to keep metformin, 30 years of experience and more, cheap and in a good combination with an SJT2 inhibitor. is recommended for type 2 diabetes and CKD. A GLP-1 receptor agonist is additional drug with heart and kidney protection, the next layer, we may use it to intensify glycemic control. And then an RAS inhibitor already told you for kidney protection. And now the non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists are recommended for patients with type 2 diabetes, residual risk of kidney disease progression, and cardiovascular events when they have an UACR above 30 and a normal potassium level. So we have three pillars for kidney protection, which is SJT2, RAS, and NSMRA. I think most of these SJT2 inhibitors can now be used also in patients without type 2 diabetes because they also protect progression of chronic kidney disease in people without type 2 diabetes. And now I think it's done. My time is off and I hand over to Professor Herspink. Please, Hido. Thank you, Christoph. I want to go back to the original sentence. If you won't seek, you won't find. This was a sentence that was proposed about 20 years ago when people were talking about screening for albuminuria, early identification of chronic kidney disease. I think it's more timely than ever with the new drugs that we have, the three pillars, RAS inhibition, SGLD2s, NSMRAs, as just mentioned, we now have the tools to treat these patients and thus we have to find them. And that's why it's so important. What do we know about the SGLD2 inhibitors? As already mentioned by Christoph, we have three very large clinical trials, more than 15,000 people enrolled in these trials demonstrating consistently that SGLD2 inhibitors reduce the risk of kidney failure, 
CKD progression. But not only that, these drugs also reduce heart failure. Together, in a meta-analysis, they reduce the risk of mortality. They do many more things. They reduce the risk of anemia. They reduce hyperkalemia, which is common in patients with chronic kidney disease. So there are many benefits with these agents. And thus, we have to use them and apply them in our clinical practice. Credence demonstrated for the primary endpoint a 34% relative risk reduction. DAPA-CKD shown here, the secondary endpoint, 44% reduction in the risk of kidney failure. That was the secondary endpoint, along with 50% decline in GFR. And EMPA-Kidney demonstrated a 28% relative risk reduction for the primary endpoint of CV death and kidney failure. Importantly, as mentioned, these benefits are present in patients with and without diabetes as they were enrolled in DAPA-CKD and in EMPA-Kidney. And based on these findings, the guidelines have started to adopt recommendations for the use of SGLD2 inhibitors in patients with chronic kidney disease. In patients with diabetes and chronic kidney disease, use always an SGLD2 inhibitor. In patients with chronic kidney disease, without diabetes and albumin to creatinine ratio, more than 200 milligram per gram, an SGLD2 is recommended. In patients with microalbuminuria, albumin to creatinine ratio greater than 20 milligram per gram, SGLD2 inhibitors are suggested. So not every patient needs that drug. What about the initiation of SGLD2 inhibitors? Remember, initially, when we go back 10 years, SGLD2 inhibitors were not recommended in patients with chronic kidney disease or diabetic kidney disease because the idea was that these drugs would not reduce HbA1c too much. And that's why the FDA and the EMA, the regulatory agencies, recommended not to initiate these drugs. But nowadays we know that these drugs have benefits beyond glycemic control. And that's why we can initiate them in patients with chronic kidney disease. Empacliflozin can be initiated in a patient with a GFR above 20. Dapacliflozin in a patient with a GFR above 25, because that was the inclusion criterion for the trial. And canacliflozin in a patient with diabetic kidney disease can be initiated when the GFR is above 30. Now, importantly, you don't have to stop the drug if the kidney function declines below that threshold. You can continue all the way until the patient starts dialysis. And hopefully you will prevent dialysis so that the patient can continue on the drug and have the other benefits of an SGLD2 inhibitor during that treatment period. We also have another drug class, the non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, phenylalanine demonstrated in two big clinical trials, Fidelio and Figaro. And if we combine them, we talk about the fidelity pooled analysis as demonstrated here, reduced the risk of kidney failure or 57% decline in GFR by 23%. This is a very large analysis of more than 13,000 people and demonstrating the very clear risk reduction. Now you can think about, can we combine these drugs If we add them together, would that lead to potential additional benefits for high-risk patients? There are currently a couple of trials ongoing that test the combination of a non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist and an SGLD2 inhibitor. We started such a trial a couple of years ago, and we didn't have the beautiful non-steroidal MRAs, but used the more steroidal MRAs. And in our study, we tested a 
just as an example and to test if MRAs can be combined with SGLD2 inhibitors. This is the so-called ROTATE3 study. It was a crossover study, so patients first received dapagliflozin, then apleronone, and then the combination. In a crossover study, you start the drug and you stop the drug. And that's nicely illustrated here. So when we start dapagliflozin, we see a reduction of about 19% in albuminuria as a surrogate for kidney protection. If you stop the drug, you see that the albuminuria levels after four weeks return to the starting values. Now with apleronone, you see a 34% reduction in albuminuria. And if you stop apleronone, you see that the albuminuria levels go back into the direction of the baseline starting values. 19 plus 34 is exactly 53. If you combine the two drugs, you see a 53% reduction in albuminuria. And if you stop them, the albuminuria levels go back. So these drugs work beautifully additive. And in high-risk patients, you can combine them possibly to further reduce the progression of kidney function decline. There's another advantage. Apleronone has a side effect that causes hyperkalemia. I just mentioned that SGLD2 inhibitors prevent or reduce the risk of hyperkalemia. And indeed, in this study, we found lower potassium levels with the combination and a significantly lower risk of developing hyperkalemia during the combination treatment. So enhanced safety and increased efficacy with the combination. And thus we have to apply these findings in our clinical practice. We are not so good in implementations. This is a study from the United States, but that looked at the initiation of ACE inhibitors angiotensin receptor blockers and compared that with potential harmful drugs for the kidney, proton pump inhibitors, NSAIDs. And what you see counterintuitively is that more patients receive detrimental drugs for the kidney compared to protective drugs, at least in the U.S. This tells us that we have to carefully look at what we prescribe to our patients, and not us, probably our colleagues. And that requires discussion among colleagues, involvement of pharmacists to optimize pharmacotherapy for patients with diabetes, kidney disease, obesity, or other cardiometabolic conditions. So we have demonstrated that early intervention may slow the progression of chronic kidney disease to end-stage kidney disease or kidney failure by decades. Late intervention only delays that progression to kidney failure by a couple of years. Thus, we have to initiate early. Empagliflozin, dapagliflozin, canagliflozin, phenylalanine reduce the risk of cardiometabolic conditions in patients with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. And we even have evidence for empagliflozin and dapagliflozin to use them and treat chronic kidney disease in patients without diabetes, with or without heart failure. Diabetes specialists can help educate colleagues in nephrology, cardiology, and primary care about the benefits, and this requires communication among the different specialties to optimize care for patients with diabetes and chronic kidney disease, or those without diabetes and chronic kidney disease. So it's now time for questions and answers. Yeah, there are more people who, who switch from EGFR to albuminuria, which is great because albuminuria is such an important risk marker for kidney and cardiovascular disease. And it's so easy to measure. All you need is a little bit of urine 
no vena puncture, just a little bit of urine that patients can even collect at home, can send it by mail to a central lab and it can be measured. Uh, Dr. Hirschkovich, UMass uh, Medical School, uh, Western Massachusetts. Um, you discussed SGLT2 inhibitors, but the guidelines usually recommend first ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Most of the guidelines, because there's many, but uh, I think the ACE inhibitors or the ARBs should not be disregarded, and I think they come first, and then the SGLT2 inhibitors second. And that's because I think one works on the afferent and the other one works on the afferent arterial, and together they're much better than, than none. So I appreciate the results of the Rotate 3 trial with the aplerinone, but I think the ACE inhibitors or the ARBs with the SGLT2 inhibitors are more additive than anything else. I would fully agree with you. In all the big clinical trials, we test ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, and SGLD2s on top of ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers. So indeed, all these patients with chronic kidney disease, according to the guidelines, are treated first with ACE or ARBs, and then on top of SGLD2 inhibitors. In the DAPA-CKD trial, interestingly, 3% of patients did not tolerate an SGLD2 and ACE inhibitor or ARB. In these 3% of patients, we initiated an SGLD2, and the effect was similar. In the ROTATE-3 study, all patients, just like the other trials, were already on an ACE or ARP, and then on top of that, we tested SGLD2 plus aplerinone in combination. So it's a very valid remark. But for the first time, I had one patient which had nothing newly detected, rapid declining, already kidney disease. I gave him an SGLT2 inhibitor first because you get twice as much as you get from an, is this forbidden? And I personally, no, it's not forbidden, but if I follow the guideline, I first have to initiate an SGLT2. Uh, an ACE or ARP, sorry. <laughs> Did we answer your question? Thank you very much. Thank okay. you. Now I can answer the question about cystatin C. Cystatin C is another filtration marker, is independent of muscle mass, and can be used to estimate GFR. The problem in Europe is that cystatin C is quite expensive relative to creatinine. We pay in my institute about 50 euro cent for creatinine and about 9 euro for cystatin C. I know that in other places around the world, it's just the opposite. I believe that in the United States, it's much cheaper to measure cystatin C compared to creatinine. And I believe that for some patients, it would be really good to measure cystatin C because it's a very accurate marker of filtration, but in some areas, it's just too expensive to use. How long does it take? How many more years that we may see a switch? Oh, I, I actually don't know. That depends probably on the companies who sell cystatin C mm. markers. I, I see a rapid uptake in the United States and in Europe. We usually follow the United States. So it may not take a long time in Europe before we see that uptake in Europe. But what is your experience, Christoph? Yeah, Germany is a poor country. So actually you need to come down to the level of creatinine. Yeah? And I try to move from Jaffe determination of creatine to enzymatic, yeah, from a five cent to a 20 cent, yeah, you say 50 cent. It's, I think, I don't know why this barrier is there, but I hope earlier than later. Another question, 
Um, we mentioned UACR, very clear, urinary albumin creatine ratio, but I see literature where there is written ACR. Yeah. And then outside nephrology, some people come to me and say, is this serum albumin? Yeah. Do you see this confusion sometimes? Do we have to really to hammer on UACR? You know, I, I am such a albu urinary albumin fan that I even didn't think about that people could suggest, are we, do we have to measure serum albumin? But we have to be very clear and make it very clear that we measure the albumin in the urine. Serum albumin can be measured as a, as a measure of a malnutrition or perhaps sometimes it is used as a measure of inflammation or whatsoever. But when we talk about UACR, we talk about the albumin and the creatinine in the urine. I've heard people measuring creatinine in plasma and then calculate the ratio of the urine albumin versus the plasma creatinine, which is also not the case because we use the creatinine to adjust for hydration status. So we have to be very clear in our terminology. And, and another question, I recently gave a presentation for family uh, physicians and they told me by surprise that it's already boring to give an SGLT2 inhibitor, we have heard this. Yeah? Almost, they who come to the meeting or to the education. And so I'm now on the next level for the three pillar approach like the cardiologist. We need three intervention. Do you think there is a barrier for um, adding finerenone to SGLT2 inhibition? Is, uh, how long does it take uh, for a doctor to implement this? That's, that's currently the biggest uh, elephant in the room. We need three, please combine. I think that the combination treatments are in particular useful for patients with very high albuminuria levels who are at extremely high risk for kidney failure and heart failure. In those patients, I would initiate a three-pillar approach because the relative risk reduction that we can achieve with these agents when we use them in a combination is the same. But because these patients are such a high risk, the absolute risk reduction, which is directly a measure of how a patient will benefit is much higher for that individual patients with high albuminuria. So if I had to do something back in my clinic, I would first identify the patients with high albuminuria and initiate a three-pillar approach before going down into the lower albuminuria levels because these patients don't progress as fast. I, I still have a final question to you, um, which is the future. Yeah? We already have these three pillars. That's great, but there is a, a bright future ahead. And this is more drugs who prevent progression of kidney disease, which is a GLP-1 receptor agonist, maybe. Yeah. And then I think you are involved in endothelin receptor antagonists. And then are the aldosterone synthase inhibitors so what do you think about the future of these three drugs? What is the next ultimate thing? I always start laughing because when I think about this question, because a couple of years ago we talked about personalized medicine. And the only drug class we had were ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blocks. They were talking about personalized medicine. How can you personalize treatment if you only have one drug class available? So that... That is very difficult, but now we have a menu of drugs, GLP-1s, endothelin receptor antagonists, MRAs, SGLD2 inhibitors, and we can really start to think about which patient requires which 
drug or combination of drugs. I have a very simple proposal and I would like to test that in the future. An obese individual with diabetes requires GLP-1 and SGLD2. A patient with heart failure and diabetes requires an MRA plus an SGLD2 because both drugs reduce heart failure. And then a patient with severe kidney dysfunction and hyperkalemia receives the endothelial receptor antagonist plus the SGLD2 inhibitor. That's a simple algorithm that can be applied easily in clinical practice. And we have to demonstrate that that approach, I have to do that, would be beneficial for individual patients. So if you want to work with me, talk to me after this meeting and we can do it together. But we are close to time, but I cannot ignore the last question, please. Thank you, I'm TJ from Jakarta. Uh, some patient, type 2 patient with the CKD5, and then the nephrologist put to the, uh, the dialysis, and the patient with, uh, on the SGLT2 inhibitors. Do you think that uh, we should continue the SGLT2 inhibitors or stop the, the drugs? Thank you. <laughs> you do the trial, you know. I will tell you a story. A couple of years ago, a taxi company approached our university and said, we have been transporting patients with dialysis for many years to your university. We made a lot of profit. Here's a couple of million euro. Do with it whatever you want. And you know what? We said we're going to do a study in patients on dialysis or with kidney transplantation or a GFR but below 25 and going to test the efficacy and safety of SGLT2 inhibitors. When Professor Warner heard about this initiative, he said, I want to participate as well. So he applied for funding, received the funding, and now we're doing the trial in the Netherlands, in Germany, and in Australia. More than 200 patients have already been enrolled. We need 1,500 patients and we're going to test whether SGLD2 inhibitors reduce the risk of mortality, heart failure, and kidney failure in those not yet on dialysis in these patients. So we don't know the answer. I cannot give you the answer yet, but in a couple of years, I hope to answer your question. I think uh, we come to an end, and I thank you for listening to us. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ZSZ860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Boehringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Lilly.